When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined after a week away by Mo Stewart. Mo, how was Glasgow, mate? Um, it was very good. I'm not going to lie. Um, and also to some of the people in the comments who were like, how could he dare miss a week of football for Glastonbury? Um, I was actually performing. I wasn't just uh, there as a fan. So that's how. Uh, and yes, it was very good. It was one of the best weeks of my life. And you can probably tell by looking into my eyes, I'm probably not fully recovered. <laughs> I look like that daily anyway, mate. <laughs> um, but yeah, we forgot to tell this, and this to be honest, so we we, we had an, another surprise week away. Um, apologies for that one, but it is I mean, the end of the season. We, we were trying to like provoke Liverpool into some action, you know. <laughs> well, it might have worked. It might have worked. We are we are linked with a player strongly, um, so we're going to talk about him today. Exciting link, and then on the back of that, we did. I did send out a newsletter last week asking for questions in terms of a little Q and A. So. Once we get through uh, our transfer link with a lad whose surname is very difficult to pronounce, <laughs> uh, we'll move on to the Q and A. So, without further ado, Mo, uh, Dominic Sobberslay, I think is how you say it. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, that was a good opening uh, attempt at his name. Uh, <laughs> luckily for me, uh, Ben Bokchak of our parish has been talking about him for pretty much as long as I've known him, and. It's an interesting guy because he's the kind of player who I didn't think Liverpool were potentially going to be targeting. Um, we've seen, we've said on a, one of the other shows previously that all of the guys seem to be playing uh, or favouring the left-hand side. Well, this guy is very much a guy who, who favours the right-hand side. But also, he's a potential answer to the question, what do we do when we need to give most Salah a rest? Because... He is pacey. He does have good dribbling ability and skill, and he can go out on the outside. So it's a very interesting one in terms of how we project what the future is going to look like of the midfield, because you look at his skill set and you, you think this could be more evidence of the box midfield coming in, because that's pretty much how he's been playing in Leipzig all season. Yeah, I'll be honest, mate. I, I really like the link and it feels good to be able to say that, to be honest, because I feel like lately, since the window opened, apart from McAllister, I feel like I've been quite low on Liverpool's <laughs> links. I feel like I've been a bit of a downer, and I don't want to be like that. I would like to give praise to a Liverpool sign. Um, but Sobberslay is a player who, you know, looking at the link, I could straight away in my head see the fit, and that, that's a nice feeling to have. Um, he does look very well suited to what Liverpool currently don't have really for me, especially if we are moving towards this this three two five system with Trent as an inverted fullback, a box midfield. You know, the, uh, on the right of the box, at the top of it, it's been Henderson over the last 10 games of the season. Now, with the ball, that, that requires Henderson to essentially behave like a number 10 who is technical and creative in confined spaces. And for me, Henderson's never been that. So he's done it to an okay level, but you just don't want Jordan Henderson in an attacking bank of five, in my opinion. The alternative for Henderson in that same role is Harvey Elliott, um, who I think is good. I'm, st- I'm still, I'm still pretty big on Elliott, he's, but he's still only twenty, and I don't think I'm at the point yet where I want him playing every single week. No. So my question about Liverpool's kind of box has been, what what's going on there? Because we're not targeting anyone there. So seeing Sobberslay get linked, who's played basically that role for most of the season, but it's been a 4-2-2-2 two, two, two 
but it's yeah. very similar in the sense that it's kind of an advent an advanced number eight slash ten kind of thing. So the fact that we could have him on the right of the box, maybe McAllister on the left of the box, and Fabinho and Trent in the deeper areas of the box, that that for me would be a big transformation based on what we had last season. Oh, definitely. And I think when you compare it particularly to the way Henderson uses that role, you're able to keep all of the things that Henderson does well. So, for example, um, some of his uh, winning ability to win the ball high up the pitch, something that he's improved dramatically over the last 12 months. He has that. He has a fantastic work rate as well. He's very much someone who believes that talent is only at its best when it's uh, allied with hard work. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's literally got that tattooed on his arm somewhere. So he's not afraid to put the work in, but he's a goal threat. And he's a goal threat in a way that I'd say probably Philip Coutinho was a goal threat for Liverpool because you can look at the raw numbers and say, well, maybe he's not scoring a whole lot of goals, but every time he shoots, he's a danger and defences have to honour that. So if he's in and around our box, 25 yards from goal in space, defences won't be able to just back off him in the way that they have been with Henderson. And that will create space for others. I also think it will actually give lead to him increasing his goal output. I think that's something that can definitely go up. So I do think, like you say, if you are looking at our plan A, it's a very exciting development, but it also has lots of versatility baked into it as well. I think we spoke about that with McAllister and his ability to play different positions. He obviously does have a preference. I think Soboslai is the same. But if you can get to a point where these two are playing in tandem and are able to understand and build chemistry, then it can be really hard for defences to work against if they can interchange in ways that defences weren't necessarily predicting. So, again, it gives you a lot of potential options. And I think he's at the right time in his career. He's done, what, two and a half years, is it, in Leipzig, played under many different managers in many different systems and always seemed to be able to excel and add something to his game year on year. So, yeah, I'm like you. I think if we can get this one done, it'll be a fantastic signing. Yeah, well, even before his time at Leipzig, he was in he was in Salzburg, so he's been kind of like under the Red Bull wing for a good few years now. And, you know, we, we've touched a few on, the, on that dynamic a few times on this podcast over the years in terms of just the correlation between being a Red Bull player and being a Liverpool player with Jurgen Klopp in charge, it's similar instructions, it's similar demands. So any player who does prosper at a Red Bull club is likely to do well at Liverpool, I think it's fair to say. Soboslai has been kind of like a a wonder kid in the making, really. He's been he's been tipped for, for big things for quite a few years there now, and he's getting to a point now where he's, I think he's 23 in October. So if Liverpool can kind of get him in now, We'd have him there for a few years, and you mentioned his versatility there. For me, he, he reminds me a lot, actually, of, of Gakpo. I think he's very similar to Gakpo in that sense, in in that he can kind of almost play anywhere, really, in terms of like an eight, a ten, wide on the flanks. I don't know if I can overly see him as a centre forward, but he, he what I'm getting at is he's, he is very versatile. Um, his first season in Germany, he played on the left. Um, Second season in Germany, which is the the one that's just ended, is where he moved across to the right. Um, he is right footed, and I don't think, as I said, I don't think he's as much of a wide forward as Gakpo is in terms of that cutting inside dynamic and finishing with in the far corner and stuff like that. I don't think he's one of them, but he is a player who can play inside and outside. And with Liverpool kind of wanting to be this unpredictable, flexible machine who don't really have a fixed plan in place at the minute. Like McAllister, to be honest, Soboslai would be a player who, if you did get him in, you wouldn't be tied to one specific system or formation or whatever. You can do different things. Yeah, and I think that that's... It's interesting, isn't it? Because you look at different teams doing things different ways. <clears throat> so, for example, we look at Arsenal and the way that they've gone about their midfield recruitment with Rice and Havertz. And you can very much see how exactly they're planning to put the two of them together with Odegaard to create that midfield with the others around them. You can see the plan in action. And that's a team that are at the beginning of their cycle and just starting to come into their own. So that makes sense. But we're at a different side of our cycle. We're kind of starting again. We're trying to reset. So having those options is more important and being able to be 
fluid is more important. So I do think that sometimes you can look at other teams and say, well, why aren't we doing it like this? Why are we doing it like that? And it can be something like that, just like you say, in, in a different part of their, their cycle. But I think it's going to suit Liverpool to be able to have options because we are a team that does ask a lot of our players. We are a team that traditionally does get a lot more players injured for whatever reason. So we need to have as many different options without there being a massive drop-off as possible. Yeah, well, you mentioned there about injuries. His availability last term was, was pretty good. He made 28 starts from a possible 34 in the Bundesliga. Uh, I think the previous season wasn't as good. It was about 15 starts, I think. But I think there was some underlying reasons behind that. I'm not too sure. Um, he is a good size, about six foot one. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a release clause, <laughs> which is apparently due to expire basically now, to be honest, at the end of the month. 70 million euros, about 60 million pounds. I don't think this matters. I, I'm not bothered about this whatsoever because the, the, the bottom line is when it comes to release clause, A, if you don't want to pay it, you don't have to. You can bid below it and see if the club accepts. And B, if it runs out, that doesn't then mean he can't be bought. That means then you can just probably a bit more room to negotiate, essentially. So I think Liverpool are probably having a conversation regardless of any release clause. And I think it's probably just a case of like, Basically, what are you willing to come down to? Because yeah. Liverpool probably don't want to pay that much. So I don't think the release clause talk is, is much of a thing, to be honest. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Well, I mean, it, not in the way that a lot of people are using it as, as in a way of saying, oh, Liverpool can't, Liverpool being cheap, etc., etc., etc. I think this is one of those times where it's justified to be smart rather than just looking at it being cheap. I understand. The what we were saying before, the impatience. You want to get people in as quickly as possible, particularly with pre-season and because so much is new, so much is changing. But you're right. The release clause is not only a set fee. More often than not, it's one that's required to be paid in a lump sum. Yeah, so yeah I'm going to say that. That is something that Liverpool are obviously going to have to take into consideration when they're looking to buy more than just one more player. So that's one reason to let it elapse. The other reason... At the moment, Leipzig are still trying to flush out as many potential suitors as possible. But from listening to local journalists in and around Leipzig and people who are close to German football, it appears that Zobersley has made his mind up that he wants to leave, has made his mind up that he probably wants to come to the Premier League as well. At the moment, the choices he has is Liverpool and Newcastle. And based on what I've heard him say, not only about Liverpool, but about Jurgen Klopp, about wanting to be one of the top five or six teams in the world. None of that sounds like Newcastle to me. So, Liverpool, fresh from having done a deal with RB Leipzig to send them Fabio Carvalho, by the way, would be well entitled to sit tight and say, look, I know that the release clause is 60, but we're going to give you, say, 50, 45, with a potential with add-ons to go to 65. And we'll be paying it over a couple of or three or four years over the course of the contract. That seems like something that would be acceptable to Liverpool, probably acceptable to Leipzig, but it might take a little bit more time until they've exhausted all of their other avenues. We'll have to wait and see. This is the dance we play. This is the dance. Yeah, well, to be honest, if you think about it, even if Liverpool were to pay 60 for them, which does feel a tiny bit steep, you've got to remember we got Alexis McAllister for 35, mate. So... You're looking there at, at, at two players, two really good players who are perfect for the system, by the way, for about, like, you know, around 90-ish million. So you're looking at about 45 million each if you look at them as a pair, which I think is bang on. I think that's that's good value for money. So I think the money that Liverpool have saved by getting McAllister for the fee that he did, for me, that should be able to be dedicated to someone who's a bit better than some of the links we've seen. Um I think Sobosly is a is a is a great link. Um, I would like that one to happen. That's that, that would definitely get the green light from me. I think Barella is someone who we've seen on the market a little bit getting linked around, and we spoke about him recently, didn't we? If he's on the market for me, you should be able to pay a little bit more for him. But we have no idea about Liverpool's budget. Um, but if you look at if you look at Sobosly in terms of his game and things like that, data wise, he, he stands out as a player who 
despite his advanced positioning, he does get on the ball a lot. And uh, that's one of the things I've liked about Curtis Jones, specifically in this kind of 10 role. I think you have to be you have to be a link, you have to make the ball stick, you have to keep the ball in the final third. Mm-hmm. And um I think Joshua Kimmich is the only player in the Bundesliga this season who received more open play passes in the opposition half than than, than Soberslay. So he is kind of that he's always available essentially as a passing option. Yeah. I think he's I think he's a perfect player for this for this system. So if Liverpool are going forward with that system, I would I'm absolutely in favour of this one happening essentially. No, I I agree. And I do think it's the fact that he can play so perfectly in this system, but also be really effective in others is why I'm like you. I I would be willing to pay more for him. If if you told me that Liverpool are activating the release course today and they're getting him, I'll be like, Cool, great. That obviously means that we've got enough money to do something else as well. But I do think this is one of those situations where it appears like the player wants to come to Liverpool over everyone else. And normally when Liverpool know that, their um, tactic is to sit tight and wait for the price to come down. So it might be one that we have to wait for, unfortunately. I'd love it if it wasn't, but that's my personal gut feeling. But in terms of suitability... He, he he ticks every box you've got. Yeah, it is tricky when it comes to the market at the minute. I think Liverpool are trying to search for value as they always do. Um, a lot of people would label that as Liverpool being cheap. I mean, that's that's your own interpretation. That if you want to interpret it that way, I understand that. But um, if you look at some of the prices going about forty million for Madison, I think is quite good. Um, One hundred and five million for Declan Rice is a lot more than I thought he was going to go for, to be honest. He's, I think he's down to his final two years. I know he's a good player, English and all that stuff, captain of West Ham. But I thought he'd go for closer to like 70, 80, personally. So 105 for Declan Rice is definitely a market setter. If, you, if you'd have told me he would go for more money than Jude Bellingham, I would be shocked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's insane, isn't it? Um, what else are we looking at in terms of deals? Kovacic, I think, for about 35 million, looks like a decent one. I'm not sure how they made that one happen. Mason Mount. I think Chelsea won about 65, is it, that they won for them or something like that. So, you know, these are all, well, not not Rice, but some of these players are similar-ish in terms of profiles and stuff like that. So I think around 50-ish for Sobosly, I think, would be in the realms of reasonable. And I, yeah. I don't think you're getting taken the cleaners or anything like that. So, um, But it's, it's interesting because everyone's kind of, not not panicking, but it, it is getting to that point where you're looking at your neighbours, aren't you? And I mean, <clears throat> Kai, Kai Havertz has just gone to Arsenal for sixty-five million. That's a lot of money as well. Yeah, it is. And <clears throat> this kind of kind of kind of goes back to what I was saying before in terms of Liverpool and Arsenal, in particular, and where they are in their cycles. Like Arsenal are in the position where they're like, most of our team is done. We're just trying to add the extra few bits. So. They are able. They feel able to go out there and confidently say, "These are the guys we want. This is what it's going to cost. We're just going to do it." That's fair play to them. And to be honest, they weren't always like that. And one of the things I think about with Arsenal and their ownership, Stan Kroenke, he owns lots of other teams in lots of other sports. While two of these other teams have recently won the championship, so they've had a very high influx of um, revenue coming in, not just from winning prize money but from cachet and all of those things which probably helps loosen the purse strings in some of his other ones so come on boston red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we'll get some questions about fsg to be honest when we look at this q a really um, <laughs> but yeah if we if we if we round up on on Sobosly, um obviously it's it's a deal that is apparently going to be difficult to do i think was the words that we used um, unclear if it developed due to prices. What Ornstein said, David Ornstein of the Athletic. Um, but one of the one of the really encouraging things that he said in his original tweet was, um, unclear if it developed due to price, but is desired profile is what he said. And I think that is that for me is spot on because he's exactly the kind of profile I have had in mind. Um, when it comes to what Liverpool need this summer to to kind of give this midfield department a boost. So I made it clear already anyway, but <laughs> to round up on that, well, he is well, a player I would be interested in buying for Liverpool. Like. One other thing about it, um, it is going to be a difficult deal to make, but 
having the Carvalho deal, where at the moment we are not giving them an option to buy, maybe that's what gets it over the line. Maybe we relent on that and give them an option to buy. But also, didn't we just hire a new sporting director who knows German football really well? Did, did I dream that? Did we, that happened, didn't it? That happened. It did, it definitely did. Well, come yeah. on then, Mr. Schmadke. Prove your <laughs> worth. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. I mean, he could be involved in any kind of deal here when you think about it. We're getting linked with lots of players in the Bundesliga, so it's interesting. But yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one and we'll go into deeper detail, I think, if if, if that one turns into something a bit more, a bit stronger. Um, but we'll move on to the Q&A anyway. So, Mo, I'll let you go first, mate. Um, as usual, just mention the play, the, the lads who, or the female or whoever, who would put forward the, the question and then read the question out. Okay, well, this one I'm going to start with from Josh A. Uh, it says, one thing that seems to be missed in the discussion surrounding our midfield refresh is how I think the club did plan a refresh, but it failed. Oxen Nabi was supposed to be the next generation, peaking right now and pushing Hendo and Thiago to the side, and yet they didn't live up to that. Do you think my assessment is accurate? How badly do you think that hurt the club? And is there a way for the club to avoid that in the future? Well, for starters, Josh, yes, I do agree with this 100%. I think this is something that isn't talked about enough. Uh, the idea that there was actually a plan. There's been a lot of talk of Liverpool being rudderless in some of our previous windows and not really keeping our eye on the ball. But that was essentially the plan. The problem with the plan is that they didn't recognise that it had failed quickly enough. There was more faith in those two than was warranted, I would say, for at least one, maybe two seasons. And that's where Liverpool got into trouble. And again, when you factor that into the way that Klopp likes to run his team, it has it, it kind of exacerbates the problem because people talk about faith and loyalty and stuff like that. But when it comes to Naby in particular, Klopp was still seeing parts of what he wanted. Like, there are still stats out there that prove that Naby Keita was effective at the times that he was in the team. He just wasn't in the team enough. <laughs> so that you can look at it that way and say that, yes, that was a really big problem. I think the way to have avoided that problem or at least mitigated that problem would have been to realise that it's a problem earlier and maybe do it. You could argue that Liverpool did realise it was a problem and they were all set to sell Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain 12 months ago and then he got injured. I think that's one other thing that we forget. If he hadn't got injured, we would have sold him last summer. Like, that's not as an absolute. We absolutely would have sold him last summer. But we couldn't. Now, the key part is, how do we avoid that in the future? Ha, ah, I'm not sure you can. Because you can't predict injuries. You can have a player who's never been injured in his life and he can get a really bad injury 10 minutes into his first game. You cannot predict that. But what you can do is realise when a bad situation is bad and maybe be a bit more ruthless a little bit earlier on. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I've got a question from Felix Tan. And what I will say as well, I, I recognise that name. And uh, lots of these people put in questions every time. So, you know... Thanks for doing that. Like I, I recognise some of these names that we, we get consistent questions from, so we appreciate that. But he says, he says, uh, do you do you still think Darwin Nunes can be a success either in the three box three system or our old four three three? And he he mentions his his, his pressing and, and things like that and his reasoning. So I think um, the the switch to the three two five system that we're using, I think, is actually ideal for Nunes. The weird thing about that is since we adopted that system, which I think was the final 10 games of the season, Nunes started one, <laughs> which I think is a bit weird. Um, but the nature of that system favours Nunes, in my opinion. I've talked all season for the past year about what, it, how I think Nunes should be deployed. People are probably sick of it. To be <laughs> but I think he's the type... Of, I'm going to say it again. I think he's the type of player... <laughs> I think he's a Haaland, essentially. Keep him away from the ball. Don't come anywhere near the ball until we want you to put it in the net. And I know over the past 12 months, he doesn't look very good at doing that either. But that, for me, is what Nunes is. He's not a wide man. 
he can't dribble past opponents, face them up and beat them unless he's just kicking a ball and run. And he's not the type to drift into midfield and, and link the play like Bobby's done for the past seven, six years or whatever it's been. He is a striker. He is a penalty box player. So Liverpool's current kind of three box, three system. Because there's two tens right behind Nunes, essentially, they do all of the linking. They yes. do all of the connecting. They make the ball stick. And Nunes creates space by them for them by stretching the defence and, and carrying the defence away from them almost. That's essentially the dynamic that Pep come up with to integrate Haaland properly. And it worked, obviously, great success to the extent that Liverpool essentially kind of copied really towards the end of the season. Um, but this three box three, if we keep it, which I would like to see happen, would get the most out of Nunes. It would allow him to do what he's good at. It would allow him to not have to get involved with things that give him a bit of a nosebleed and stuff. Yeah. Um, but we haven't really seen him in it, which I think is a bit weird. Well, it's difficult because I think Klopp was, at towards the end of the season, one of the things, obviously, that the change of formation was talking about was Trent. But we also saw a lot out of Gakpo coming, playing through the centre. And... Gakpo is a little bit more or has become a lot more like the Firmino clone. So Klopp was still trying to have that as his nine in that system. But I agree with you. I think we I think we need to be able to be in a situation where we can do both, where we can have a nine in that situation like a Gakpo who does also come, but because we've got a Salah and another strong goal threat, be it Germ uh, Diaz or Jota out wide left, they can come in and they can be the penetrative threat in and around the goal. So you still have people in and around the box. But then sometimes, like you say, we have it with Nunes where he's absolutely trying to stretch the play. He's trying to sniff out all those goal uh, chances. The other thing about having Nunes as a nine in this system, if you think about the places where Trent Alexander-Arnold normally exists, and if you think about the, the assists that Trent Alexander-Arnold has already provided to him, Newcastle away, leads away, Ball in the half space, just in front of the Premier, just in front of the halfway line. Yeah. Ball into Nunes, running away from defenders, control, turn, finish. Yeah. If you think about some of earlier on in the season, again, I think uh, Rangers away in a couple of other Champions League games, an early ball from out wide left from Simicas, Nunes header. Now, if you've got Robertson playing there, and if he's playing in the three, which means that he's not necessarily going to be getting up and down the pitch, early balls into the area. He thrives on them. This is something else that we can really use. So there are things that he can bring to the table in this system that will allow us to be even more versatile. So I hope he gets the opportunity to do it. I really do. I, I agree with you. And I think now that we will have a fully fit Luis Diaz, a fully fit Diego Jota, I think there is less need or even, um, well, there's just less need to have him out there on the left. I think you have to say, look, I know that sometimes we put you out there because it gives you a little bit of a break from trying to do all this stuff. But no, we want you as a number nine. You're going to play number nine. We're going to play you until you get it right. Yeah, well, that's why I think this is interesting about this whole shared numbers thing. Because I was I was thinking during the week and no one knows who's going to get who's going to get Bobby's nine. But I was thinking like, if if Nunes doesn't get it, you you almost can't give Nunes any other number. Whereas if Gakpo doesn't get it. You can give Gakpo all kinds of numbers, mate. You can play. Yeah. You can play across anywhere in the in the final third, essentially. Whereas if Nunes doesn't get that number nine shirt, he 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 can't. You can't give him like a number eight or something like that. You can't give him. You know what I mean? So that's an. It's a show of number. faith. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a show of faith that you are the number nine. I mean, that's essentially what how Firmino got it in the first place. I mean, partly it was because Salah wanted eleven, but. Yeah. And I think, I think in terms of the second part of, of Felix's question as well, he mentions his pressing. To be fair, a lot of the talk that I've, a lot of the comments I've made about Nunes throughout the season have primarily been adjustments for Nunes with the ball and, and possession-based adjustments and things like that. I haven't really mentioned much about his defensive game. And to be fair, he, he does have to improve it, I think. I think he's got the the kind of desire and the, the want to do it in there. But the kind of positional 
know-how and, and the expertise and the tactical intelligence, I think, is a bit a, a little bit lacking. Like, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on this podcast, but towards the end of the season, Klopp labelled him as a resource. Yeah. And I think it was a negative comment, to be honest, because he said it in a way as in, like, I think he, at the time he wanted Nunes to sit on Polina at the time. And because Nunes is what he's like, he starts running, closing down centre-halves, leaving Polina free, and then Polina dictates the game then. So in terms of that side of his game, that's something he definitely needs to improve on. But that is difficult to do, considering Klopp and him don't yet speak the same language. So no. there's definitely improvements to be made defensively against, specifically against better teams and things like that. That's why I don't think he's started yet against Manchester City. I'm not sure I'm right in saying that or not. But I've got definite ideas in terms of what Liverpool need to do with possession to improve Nunes. But defensively, um, you just need basics a bit better, to be honest. I think that's why Gakpo's played so often in place of him. Yeah, true. And and even Gakpo himself, <clears throat> well, I'm going to come on to it a little bit more when I talk about him in one of the other questions about him in the Firmino role. But there is a difference between um, pressuring the ball and pressuring the ball correctly. Like, it's not just about effort and energy. It's about application as well. And that is something, obviously, when you see him, you can see in his eyes and his... Um, his body language, that he's busting his gut to do what he wants. He wants to work hard for the team, but it's just a case of getting him to work a little bit smarter, I think. But hopefully, that's what pre-season's for. Hopefully, he can be a bit more relaxed, he can take stock of what he did in his first season and build from here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who's next, mate? Uh, so next is a question from George Bibby, uh, and it's one that's kind of a little bit more, um, more uh, general. Is that do you expect FSG to allow Jurgen to buy enough players to fill gaps left by those players leaving or expected to leave the club? And he's named eight players here: uh, Oxley Chamberlain, Milner, Cater, Nat Phillips, Carvalho, uh, Ramsey, uh, Reese Williams, and Kelleher. Now, as we stand, personally, I think at least seven of those will leave. In fact, I do think it will be seven. At this stage, I still think Kelleher is going to stay. So you wonder about that's a lot of players, and we've seen previous years that Klopp has liked to have a tight, a smaller squad, but we've also seen the detriment to that. And I don't know, to a certain extent, some of those players were what you would call injury prone, and so having injury prone players in a squad, you kind of need more of them. So Klopp might be of the opinion, well, if I've got more durable guys then maybe I can go with a smaller squad. But then I thought even more about how much did we actually lean on those guys last season? So I looked into it. Uh, I've got a few little numbers here. So of those eight players, Milner played the most. 43 appearances, all competitions, which is still astounding to me. Um, but 31 of those were as a sub and only three times did he complete 90 minutes, which kind of really tells you about what his role really was. Carvalho, 21 appearances, 13 as a sub, only one full 90. Oxlade Chamberlain, 13 appearances, eight as a sub, one full 90. Naby Keita, exactly the same, 13, eight and one. Nat Phillips, five appearances, one full 90. Ramsey, two appearances, one full 90. Kelleher, four appearances, four full 90s. So what I'm getting at is, we didn't really have them last season anyway. So I think Milner will definitely need to replace. I think Carvalho we will need to replace. I don't think we're going to literally have a like-for-like like for all eight because, frankly, we didn't really use all eight last season. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, mate. Uh, I've got a question from... Let's have a look. Joseph... <laughs> Chishimbe. I think I've hopefully I haven't butchered that one. Um, but he says, why shouldn't Liverpool consider moving Trent Alexander-Arnold into midfield next season? Um, to be honest, with time, I am becoming more open to this. Um, most of the reason behind that was because the right side of Liverpool's box midfield was looking a bit weak. Um, Henderson and Elliot there. Um, I think it was 
upgradable to be to be honest. But I think looking at the market, this was before the Sobersly link. You know, we tried to get Mason Mount, it would have been ideal for that. We we couldn't get him. Um so at that point I was kind of looking looking at it and thinking like may, maybe we do just have to entertain the, the, the prospect of Trent becoming a full time midfielder and rather than buying one of these number eights who we don't really want that much, we go and buy a, a right back instead. Um and I th- I am still very I feel very flexible with that. I think Trent is no matter what Trent is uh a, a solution for us really. I think he can be used in lots of different places. I think he can be a double six with Fabinho. I think he can be a right side of eight, mm-hmm. like a Kevin De Bruyne type player. And I think he can be a, a conventional right back or an inverted right back. So I don't think he's a problem. Um but the the link with Sobuxlai, I think probably just if that if we was to get that one over the line, I think it would keep the three two five as it is with Trent doing the inverted right back stuff, um, but the, the only reason that I, I've, I don't have much of an issue with, with Trent becoming this midfielder that you know it's been the topic of conversation, hasn't it? But f- for me, he he should only become that if we if if the right back that we can sign is better than any right sided midfielder that we can sign. If you get what I'm where I'm coming yes. from with that, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's where the need is greater. Yeah. Essentially, and I, I think it's a really good problem to have, and I don't necessarily think it's one that is going to be solved conclusively. I think we will see over the course of this season he'll be operating in midfield, but I mean on this on the lineup sheet at the start of the game he might still be in the right back position, but he if you look at his heat map it will be different, and I think the the right back question is really the one to solve because. I think in an ideal world, Liverpool would have had a good look at Calvin Ramsey over the course of the last season and be able to make a decision on whether or not they think he's going to be suitable for us. Well, at the moment, with him going out on loan to another team, I'm not really sure that's going to help make that decision. So the idea that in 12 months' time you can say, OK, well, we know whether or not Calvin Ramsey is good enough to replace Trent as a right-back, I can't see it happening. I feel the same about Gomez, I think that with every passing year, it's going to make it harder for him to do that role. So if we are starting to see more links with right backs, I think that that's something that you can see. But I still think we're very early in that stage. I still think that Klopp has to know that, like you say, what he's getting from Trent as a midfielder is better than what he's getting from Trent as a right back or even a hybrid, hybrid inverted right back. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 one that's flexible for me. Um, depending on like what Liverpool can and can't do in the market, I think if Liverpool can't get a Sobosly or a a player of that kind of calibre to do the right side of midfield stuff, but we can get a decent fullback to just not do the inverted stuff because obviously you wouldn't necessarily do so much of the inverted stuff if Trent is already in midfield. Just a standard, decent fullback who just offers a relatively all-rounder profile, but obviously not crazy because otherwise he wouldn't be on the market. But just someone who's of a decent level going both ways. Um, like I think, for example, when Trent played there for England, for, for England lately he's played as a, a right side at eight in the midfield three, and he's done really well. And in the second game in particular, I don't know about the first, but in the second game, England's right back was was Kyle Walker. And I think that is naturally an ideal partnership if you have a player who's a right side of the so offensive and creative like that. And the defensive fullback behind them is so good one v one. Yes. That he just kind of makes up for him. Obviously Liverpool can't go and get Walker. But if we can get somebody who is of a similar profile. It would be something I'd think about, yeah, but it's it's up in the air for me. Who's next, mate? Uh, next one comes from Sheehan Probst, and I honestly don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to kind of say it anyway. Who do you think will get more minutes next season, Harvey Elliott or Curtis Jones? Which is a fascinating question, because mm. if you'd have asked me at the start of the last two seasons, I'd have got it wrong. and and I think that if you look at the trajectories of the two and how they've kind of they've never both been 
in at the same time. It's always been while one's kind of out of favour for injury or whatever reason the other one's in. But what we were talking about before with Dominic Zobersley and his fit for that box, he does appear to be, if he is coming in, that would certainly appear to restrict Elliot's minutes. Whereas with Jones, you do still think that there is a space for him in the team. I mean, if you listen to Steven Gerrard, he was saying that his his shirt to lose, which I think it'll, I'd like to see him come into the season with that mentality. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But I think, personally, that Klopp, at this precise moment in time, still trusts Elliot a little bit more, but I think it will be Jones. Personally, I think it will be Jones. I'd like to think that this is a season where he really kind of stamps his place within this Liverpool squad. Yeah, it's a tricky question. I think Jones has fared along in his development, personally. I think, um, but a lot of this, for me, depends on the competition that they've got for their their places on the pitch. And in terms of Jones, I'd like I'd like to know what the plan is regarding McAllister, because the, the the role that Jones occupied at the end of the season, last ten games, and he was brilliant, by the way. That is where McAllister plays, and in that three box three system. I I can't see McAllister anywhere else. Um apart from I mean you could put him on the right of the box, I suppose, but he he's a left sided player for me. So I don't know where else he plays apart from that Jones role. And McAllister's brilliant for me. So McAllister plays for Liverpool next season often. Never gets injured. So I think McAllister could, could be a problem for Jones. Whereas as of right now at least mm. Elliot's only competition is Henderson. Obviously that would change if we got Sobos lying. But a lot of it for me will is just up in the air, depending on who Jones is competing with to get minutes. Yeah. And who um, who Elliot's competing with. I still think that the two of them I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the two of them play together if with um against certain opponents and McAllister operating in a slightly deeper role. But you're right, I think the the prime use of them will be both in the same position. But I mean to be fair, one idea I've seen floated, which I don't overly mind is rather than the box being a box the way it is, turn it ever so slightly and make it a diamond. And if you do that, then you've got Fabinho as the deepest, probably Trent on the right, um, Jones on the left, and McAllister as the 10. So that would be a way to do it. But that's a bit of a galaxy brain shout, really. But I just I don't mind it. When I first seen it, I was like, that, I don't mind that. Well, but, you don't know, what's the difference? I'll tell you what. I have never been more uh, intrigued to watch preseason. Like I, I'm not one who normally goes on preseason tours or what have you, but I would love to go to just just go with them and watch them in training just a couple of times because yeah. I can't like just to see how it all comes together because there are so many potential variables and so many potential things that even we haven't really envisaged because this is the wonderful thing about football. Footballers in particular, you can look at all of their skill set. You can look at all of the things they do on a pitch and say, when you put that one with that one, you should get that. But then you can put them together and get something completely different. Like, for example, no one, and I'm telling you here, no one knew that the connection that Salah, Mane and Firmino were able to build was coming. No one. You Mm -hmm. couldn't predict that. You just couldn't. But from playing together, having the right characteristics... And then building chemistry, we got one of the greatest front threes of football's ever seen. Yeah. I've got a question from Tony Jones. He says, do you think Liverpool should have gone for Declan Rice? And do you think it's a bad look that they can't seem or or don't want to sign English midfielders? Um, on the Rice point, I think he's a I think he's a very good player. I think he it's it's difficult because I'm thinking systems again. I'm 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 thinking like wh- wh- where would he fit if if Liverpool was a buy him? And if Liverpool were going to keep using this three two five, the only position in which Declan Rice can occupy is the one occupied by Fabinho. So that means Fabinho gets demoted to the bench because Rice plays virtually every week and he's costing a hundred million. So Rice plays. So that means Fabinho is going to the bench. Now Fabinho has not had a good season and. I think he would admit that. But 
I think looking at that system, Liverpool probably do need eight more than a six. Um, so I think I don't know. It's it, the big thing isn't just looking at the players; it's it's looking at where they will fit in, in terms of a need, in terms of on the pitch and stuff like that. And I think Rice just doesn't overly fit Liverpool. Couldn't make up unless he's playing in Fabinho's place, and it looks like Liverpool are going to keep Fabinho. I think he's got a, another like four years or something on his contract, Fabinho, so he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So you you just create a bit of a problem there, like. Um, I think if, if Liverpool were using the the, the customary four three three that we used to, I think he could p- probably play on the on the left of the three, where like when Alden played and and um, yeah. Thiago was played, because he doesn't really that that role traditionally hasn't really involved that player ever leaving the middle third, so he's he would still just be a safety net. So that I think he could do that, but I don't know. I, I I'm not. On the back on the back of this system change that Klopp introduced in April, since then I haven't been as big on Liverpool needing a Declan Rice, especially not at 105 million. No, and that's it really. It's the, all of the qualities of Declan Rice as a footballer tell me that we could make it work with him if we bought him. I'm sure we'd find a way to make it work because he is a very good footballer, and I do think he's getting better year on year. But you're right. We cannot ignore the fees. Like, if we're not pay, we're not gonna we're not gonna turn down eighty eight million or ninety million for Bellingham and then pay t- more for Declan Rice. That's just not happening. That's just not how these things work. And I also think that the Declan Rice to Arsenal thing has been pretty much set in stone from long before the season ended. I think that they were long, long, long. Uh, they were very far. A lot further down the road than we were. Now, obviously, we've been far down the road with players, and they've ended up elsewhere, namely Real Madrid. But it's different. I think in this situation, Declan Rice was very happy to go with the proposal. It was just a case of would Arsenal put up the money that West Ham wanted, and they did, and they were the only ones who did. And so I say, good luck to them. Actually, no, scratch that. Not good luck to them at all. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Essentially. We are looking for English players. The fact that we were looking for Bellingham and Mount proves that we are looking for English players. But by the same token, you said before, he was, he's was he got uh, one year on his, left on his deal with an option of a second year. And you're not necessarily going to be... You can't go into the market saying that this guy is what we get regardless and then look around and think, okay, well, who else are we going to get? We still need X, we still need Y, we still need Z. Like... If I were going into a window as a Liverpool director of football, knowing that we would need between three and five players at the very minimum, a minimum of three at the very least, maybe as many as five, maybe as many as six players, I don't think I could justify spending 100 million on one, particularly one that's not the most important. Yeah, especially if you rule out Bellingham for that reason, apparently, and you're going to get Rice. I mean, you know, it doesn't make sense for me. Who's next, mate? Okay, so this next one comes uh, from David Elliott. It says, hi, guys. I'm a massive fan of the podcast, and I very much look forward to Thursdays on my round as a postman. This is the guy who said it was criminal that I chose Glastonbury over football. <laughs> I hope you have since revised that idea. But his question is an analysis comparison. Can I, can I just say as well, like, when people drop those little lines, like, on my round as a postman, I, I love hearing that stuff. Just, yeah, just, just knowing, like... <laughs> Because you never, you never know who's listening and you never know where they are. So wh- when you get a bit of perspective like that, to just think that somebody is doing the round as a postman listening to us talk about the Reds, and this it, is, it, it, like, it is Boston. It's a, it's a hard job. Like, I would not be able to be a postie. Like, those early mornings are a little bit too early for me. So fair play to you, David. Um, so his question is about Cody Gakpo's short time in the Firmino role, trying to do a deep dive on how his first season compares with Firmino's first season under Klopp and or best season in a similar role. Now, Firmino is lauded for his ball retention and clear of the layoffs, so how does Gakpo utilise his skill set to duplicate or put a different spin on that? So, I've had a little look at some of the numbers for Gakpo for this season, and the fascinating thing about it for me is that there's a very, very clear defining line between his beginning and when we started playing this new system. In the beginning... 
you saw a lot of the same things that we saw with Nunes in that number nine role. So he was very high in pressures. He was the highest in the team at 26 pressures per 90, which sounds very impressive, but only 9.95% of those resulted in a turnover. So he was running to the ball, but he wasn't affecting the ball. And what you often see in those scenarios is that if you are running out of discipline and you aren't affecting the ball, you're leaving spaces in behind, you're making it difficult for your teammates. So that was a bigger thing. That was probably the biggest part that he had to improve upon. Because if you are trying to be a Firmino, those defensive elements are as important. And his XG was way down as well. So he wasn't doing any of the things that we saw him do when he was at PSV, let alone trying to do Firmino stuff. And then it all turns around. He's doing less pressures, about seven or eight less pressures per 90. But his um, success rate has shot up to 13%, which, okay, so only five appearances, so it's a smaller sample. But it's a marked difference, and it shows that he is learning on the job. And I think when we're talking about the comparison between Gakpo and Firmino, it's his ability to learn the role and to develop into it, I think is really exciting. Because from that evidence, we can already see that he's learned so much more than he had before. And when you consider how different the role is compared to what he was used to. But with Firmino, the difference I always found is it wasn't just about the positions that he was taking up on the pitch, but his ability to change an opponent's game plan. So he would kill defensive midfielders, absolutely harass them to the point where they often tried to give up or even tried to kick him. Gakpo hasn't necessarily been doing it that way as yet. He is, is he's still more of a, he's trying to block passing lanes, but he's not necessarily getting right into the face. He's, he's still more thinking about when we win the ball, I'm going that way rather than I'm going to go win the ball. So that's just a slight difference in it. But the thing that he has is pace and that allows him to think more for offensively. So in terms of the comparison to Firmino, I believe that he is on course with where Firmino... If you think about Firmino's first season at Liverpool, it only really started when Klopp arrived. And he ended the season, I think, 11 goals, 11 assists in 15-16. Which I believe for Gakpo... In fact, let me look that up. The Gakpo, it was 7-3, but obviously he only played half a season. So we'll be kind and double that. Because it's half season, you know. So 14 and 6 is very much around the same area. So with the intelligence he has, the pace he has, uh, and obviously the coaching system around him, I really do think he's well on course. But as we were saying previously, is he going to be able to just sit in that role and develop and develop and develop? Or is he going to have to interchange with Darwin Nunes playing ahead of him and him playing more withdrawn? So that might mean that if we're asking him to do different things over the course of the game, he might not necessarily get as much time to develop into that role. But I think he will be that guy. I I do think that he's got it in him. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, that that one features in features in my next question. It's his instance from actually it's from Luis Goncalves. And he says, Would you accept any of the following bids? Um, and he lists three. So the first one is 55 million for Darwin Nunes. Second one is 50 million for Virgil. And the third one is 85 million for Mo Salah. Uh, interesting question. I think in terms of Nunes, no, not yet. Um, but I've said a few times, if, if he experiences a full pre-season, and on the first game of next season against Chelsea, he's on the bench. For me, that would suggest that Klopp or Liverpool have kind of maybe got something wrong a little bit with the transfer because 85 million was a lot of money for him. If he comes back like next season, that doesn't speak the language yet, and like that, still, um, you know, that, that, that won't bode well. So I think in terms of Nunes, he's one to watch. I do think, I've always said, I think he's got the potential to explode and, and really catch fire and stuff. But 
he is a different just to what Liverpool have had in the past. So that's one to keep an eye on. But after one year after on Merseyside, I don't think he's been here for long enough yet to take that one. In terms of Van Dijk, again, no, I don't think I would. I think he's still enough of a difference maker, even just from set pieces and stuff, to be to be worth his weight in, in gold, really, when it comes to points for Liverpool. And I think the alternative for Van Dijk is, is a player who's, who's still probably nowhere near as good. So I don't think I'd take that. And in terms of 85 for Mo, uh, <laughs> again, still it'll probably be a no, you know. It'd be a not yet. But I think that one would be a come and ask me again next year. Because yeah. I think next season, mate, he'd be down to his final, final year of his contract. At the time, he will be 32. Obviously, there's a lot of talk around Saudi and things like that. So, as as sad as it is, really, Mo is probably, this is a guess, like, but Mo's probably going to be the next Coutinho, I would assume, for Liverpool in terms of really giving Liverpool's budget a boost, just almost cashing in on him at the very end of his career, almost. A bit like Real Madrid did with Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. Um, recognise him when that drop is going to come almost and, and really taking a massive sum for him. Um, but still, again, similar to Nunes, it'd be a no, not yet. Uh, so it'd be a no to all three of them for me. Yeah, no, I, I think I have to agree with all of that. And I would also say that, yeah, 12 months' time, I'm not even like 12 months' time, I'd be considering all three potentially. Mm. Like, obviously, if, if in 12 months' time, as you say, with Nunes, we're having the same problems. If in 12 months' time, Virgil was still having some of the same issues that he's had last season. Um, with, with Salah, I don't think he will. I think we'll get 12 months' time and then have had another great season, scored another 20 to 25 goals. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. So that's that's not really the same kind of consideration. It's not that I'm expecting him to go in, in the next 12 months, but you're right. I think <clears throat> it's a tough one because you, the idea of selling a guy who's not only still a really good player, one of the best players in the world, but has been so integral to your success for so long, it always just feels strange. It's just like, I don't want to say we should keep him for as long as we can. But if we can say, so say, say it ends up being 18 months, an extra 18 months from here, that would make it what? When did he join? 2017? So that would be eight and a half years. Eight and a half years in which we conquer the world in which Salah maybe even scored, I don't know, 200, 250 goals. And we still managed to get £85 million for him to be able to rebuild and replace him. That's the perfect plan. Like, that's the perfect plan. Like, that's how, in my opinion, long-term transfers should work. You have someone come in, a good deal, they come in and they're successful for you, you're able to bump up their wages a couple of times, and then you get to a point before they go over that cliff where they're basically just looking at it, that's when you sell. So yeah. <clears throat> I think that time might, I mean, I, I genuinely don't think that anyone would offer us 50 million pounds for Virgil van Dijk in 12 months time. But if they did, I'd be listening. Well, one of the interesting things about that actually is, is Salah and van Dijk both have two years left on the contracts as of, as of right now. And there's no real talk. I mean, Salah's just extended his deal, really. Feels like yeah. anyway. So it'll be interesting to see what Liverpool do there because obviously Klopp's original Liverpool team, Salah and Van Dijk, arguably the two biggest players in the team. Yeah. Um, and they both won out of contact at the same time. Virgil is almost 32 now. Um, Salah is 31, just. Uh, so... It's big question marks. Big, big. When I say question marks, I mean as in like big decisions to make. Yeah, Liverpool, the decisions. They're, they're huge decisions, then. They are, and I mean, when you think about it, when you're giving, if you are considering giving a player who's 32 a new contract, the chances are you're hoping slash expecting there to be maybe some kind of drop off in terms of pay. You won't be expecting them to still be the highest earners, but the problem is they're still playing every week. Like, there's, there's no way that the club can go to them and say, okay, well, you don't deserve this anymore. It's like, well, why are we still playing every week? That's So it becomes a very difficult thing in terms of how you 
set the price for these players where you aren't paying a massive wage for a guy who's maybe isn't playing as often as he were before. As we see with Milner, as we saw with Lana towards the end of his time. So, as I say, I think if someone does come in with a bid in 12 months' time for either of those two at that price, it might be very interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting one to follow up, but um, we'll leave it there. I think we've, we're approaching an hour. We've got through about two and a half questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've still got another 48 to get through or something like that. So We, we, we uh, gave them all the time they deserved. I think that's what I'd like to say. Yeah, we gave them all analysing on field time, which is too long. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I got another one as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, Mo. Uh, I'm gonna come out and say it, mate. When I come out, when when it comes to these questions, and we ask for questions to be sent in, please don't ask us for tickets because we're just not gonna be able to provide them. <laughs> we get asked for tickets every Q and A that we ask for, and it's just never gonna happen. I can't get tickets myself. Never mind getting tickets for listeners. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's impossible, sadly. Um, but that's. I suppose, a reflection of the size of the fan base. Uh, but, yeah, we will come back to this Q&A probably next week. Uh, we've still got loads of questions to get through. Um, hopefully, Liverpool make a sign in that time. We can we can address that as well, but we'll see. Um, pre-season starts soon, maybe nine days, is it, Mo, or something like that? Yeah. But, yeah, thanks for joining us, as always, Mo. No problem, no problem. Glad to be back. Yeah, and next week... As I said, we will hopefully just be back to normal in terms of appearing on. So do tune in and thanks for tuning in this week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.